You can be seated. Good morning, everybody. It is good to be together. My name is Drew. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, if it is your first time here, um, welcome. Uh, if you are, if you call Bedrock home, uh, man, I love these times together. I love that time that we just get to sing. Um, so uh, today we're going to be in Joshua. Uh, Joshua chapter, actually we're going to cover all of chapter 6, we're going to be covering the story of Jericho, so we'll finish, we'll start in chapter 5, um, and then we're going to cover all of chapter 6, so you can turn there uh, if you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, it's, it's okay, um, you can grab a Bible here, I'm reminded that we all have smart devices these days, you can also download an app if you feel like it. Um, we would love for you to have a copy of the Word in front of you. Um, let's, let's catch you up to speed. If you are new here, um, the way that we teach, the way that we um, work our way uh, through Scripture is, is kind of just one piece at a time. Um, and one of the things that we aim for is that as we go through a book, we went through Mark and now we're going through, through Joshua. Um, as we go through a book, that we, uh, we aim that the point of the passage would be the point of the message. And so oftentimes... You're like, man, there's a lot that you can draw from that. But our goal is that what the original author intended would be the things that we discuss, that God would then use that in our hearts and our lives through the power of the Spirit. So um, one of the things that we get to do is we get to look at story. We take story seriously, very seriously. Um, because one, you personally take story seriously. It's some, you all have a story, and we speak in stories. When you, but when you read Scripture, it's helpful to reflect back that you see this whole thing is one narrative. There's 66 books, and there's a story that's taking place. So let's catch ourselves up to speed in the story. Um, we talked about Joshua. We talked about Moses in the beginning. Um, and they, are, they were on the east side of the Jordan River, and now they have crossed the Jordan River. The Lord splits the Jordan River, and the people of God go through the river, and now they're at Gilgal. And what Brian said last week, which was super helpful, was that um, this moment, you would think, if you're going into conquer a land, this moment would be all about strategy. But what we said is that instead of strategy, the Lord was more concerned with their sanctity. There was a moment where God, there was just like a holy pause that he said that these people, one, what makes them distinct is that they're my people. And so what they do is they take a moment just to get their hearts right before the Lord. And so they, they pick up some old practices. Um, they circumcise all the men that were not circumcised in the wilderness um, they practice the Passover meal. Both of these are, are just moments of remembrance that they are the Lord's um, and, the God, and God keeps his promises. But one of my favorite moments um, before we go into our passage was the, the last verse of Brian's passage. Uh, in verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12, it says, And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And you're just like, I get chills because the whole story, every time that the promised land is mentioned, it's not just discussed its boundaries. Most often they also talk about its fruit. They talk about the food. They talk about the wheat, the barley, the fig trees, the olive oil, the, and the milk and the honey. And to think that after all, this generation, all they could do is eat manna and just dream about milk and honey. And for the first time, they're in this promised land. And it's the time of harvest. And they gather around the table. And for the first time, they enjoy. And so they're not just thinking about how their God keeps their promises. They're actually tasting his provision. Like they're sitting there and savoring a God that has provided. And that's where they are as they look at the walls of Jericho. And the thing that we have, the thing that we've just continued to try to drive home as a church and what we see here in this passage and throughout this book um, is that this holy pause, all throughout, these, these are purposeful. Um, and what you see is that God is more concerned about the hearts of his people than he is about their capabilities. Uh, and so... The way that we've been saying this is that while we are often most concerned with what we're doing and where we're going, God is most concerned with who we are and what we're becoming. And so throughout this story, um, you're going to see God shape Joshua, and not just Joshua, but the people of Israel. Um, and in the end, after all of this war and all of this conquering, that seems to be the point. Um, I was sitting with a friend one time, a little while back, and um, we were having one of those 1 a.m. conversations. You ever have one of those? You know what I'm talking? Good friend, right? 
you're just like, dude, it's late, but we said we were going to go to bed like, you know, at like four hours ago. You're having one of those 1 a.m. conversations, and he's at a crossroads in his life, and I'll never forget this. He's at a crossroads in his life, and he's just processing a lot of things. And his life had led him to a certain point where he's very successful. And um, he, he, was at this, he could feel the tension between the next, the next decisions that he was going to make and what his heart was actually longing for. And it felt like there was this long pause. Like it felt like there was this vulnerability and this tension and this long pause. And then out of nowhere, after just sitting with him, he says, I never wanted success. And you're just like, there it is. After all of our conversation, there it is. His, his emotions led him to his needs. His needs led him to his longings. And at that point, he's sitting there realizing that he's making decisions that are not based out of what he actually desires and what he knows to be true. And we all find ourselves there. And most often when we get there, we ask the question, how did I get here? And I think there's a lot of answers to that question. But what we see here is what he was saying when he said, I, I never want a success. It doesn't mean that he, wanted, he didn't want to achieve anything. What he was saying is, I never wanted to be defined by and controlled by the things that I achieved. And Joshua, right here, like he is going into a land where there is everything to be had. And the invitation, while he is being pushed out, the invitation is, is into the presence of the Lord. So the invitation is that we would actually be invited out of that desire and that there would be what we see here, that there would be rest. That's the whole point of the story, is that God would be with his people. They wouldn't be defined by the other, these other things, but they would be, have souls that are at rest with him. And you're like, man, our world longs for that. But it's, it's difficult to find. Um, so... That's where we're at. Um, and today, Joshua gets his moment. Let's, let's read. Joshua chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let me pray. Father, I do feel that tension um, that there is something in us that uh, just longs um, to achieve worldly success, longs for things that are outside of you, um, Lord, but there's also this deep, deep longing to be called out of that, and to be called into your presence, that we wouldn't be defined by the things that we do, but we would actually be defined by who we are in you. And so, Lord, I pray that today that you would just um, diffuse any lies, Lord, that if there's anything that we bring to the table that is not of you, that it would, you would just expose it, or that it would be able to be laid to the side, that we'd be able to throw it off, and that we would find ourselves looking at your word, looking at the God of this word, um, and Lord, humbling ourselves before you, and just as Joshua, Lord, taking off our sandals and sitting in a holy place, Lord, that we would be before you, and that you would, in that space, Lord, that you would, your presence would shape us. Would you do that for us today? Your name, amen. All right, so again, we're talking about the Battle of Jericho. This is cinematic. I'll say that, right? This is one of those things, whether it's just like Noah's Ark, Battle of Jericho, this is one of those stories that even if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's, there's a chance you're familiar with the Battle of Jericho. Uh, because it just, it just, it's all, it goes well on screen, right? So it's just one of those ones that it's a crazy story. Uh, but I, I think, as, I just, as I've been reading this passage and praying through it, I feel like the lens that God has called us to put on and the way that we can understand this story is actually through the moment that we just read, which is outside of that battle, um, but at the same time, I think shapes the entire scene. 
So there is this moment. Uh, Joshua encounters a man with a sword. Um, the first thing that we're going to see, the first point that we have is knowing God, knowing God is with us is more important than knowing the plan. Um, knowing God is with us is more important than knowing the plan. Uh, that is, I'm going to give Megan credit for that point because I wrestled forever. And I was like, babe, can you just help me say this? And she was like, yeah, say this. It took her like two seconds. It's like, why are you better at this than I am? Um, knowing God is with us is more important than knowing the plan. So we're going to start big picture. This moment right here where God, where God meets with Joshua. Um, and I say God meets with Joshua because Joshua has an interesting response right here. He goes and he's kind of surveying the land, which is probably a pretty normal thing to do um, as the leader of an army that is about to go conquer this land. And he runs into a man that has his sword drawn. So this man is some kind of warrior. And Joshua is immediately confused, probably a little bit concerned because this sword is drawn, right? And so you have this, this man that's ready for battle. Um, and Joshua asks him a question and then he gets a response And in this moment, we see Joshua do two things. First, he humbles himself in his response. He takes off his sandals and he begins to worship, right? He just humbles himself in this moment. And so there is this encounter that you see that there's going to be debate over who this man was and and what this moment was. But one thing is sure that this was a holy moment, that God's presence was there. And Joshua's only response was to humble himself. And so um, a, a term for moments like this um, is a theophany. Now, there's a reason that this matters. It's, it's, it's a, a word that's made up of two Greek words, which means God and presence. So God appears, the theophany. Um, and we see these moments happen all throughout Scripture. Um, we often think about the presence of the Lord, and maybe you think about Jesus. Maybe you think about God in the beginning when he creates everything. Maybe you think about God in the end when he returns. But what you see and what I want to help us see is that God is actually present all throughout this story. There are moments where God's presence are specifically available. And so this theophany, a theophany is an appearance of God, an intense manifestation of the presence of God that is accompanied by the extraordinary visual display. These moments are often epic. Um, and so a couple of them would be like the th- thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai. When Moses is getting the Ten Commandments and the people are at the bottom, Mount Sinai is just full of thunder and lightning and the presence of the Lord is there. Um, also, God appears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's making these promises, committing to these covenants. He enters into, the, into our world, breaks into our world, meets with these men. And what happens is there's a promise that is made that carries and ultimately brings his presence in fully. Um, There's visions that are had. There's Isaiah. And the Lord says to Isaiah, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. Like this, and Isaiah gets these visions of the seraphim and the Lord and this beautiful picture of God. And then you also have this moment in the wilderness where the people of Israel are led by a cloud and and, and a cloud by day and a fire by night. And it, it lights their way and it protects them. And you're like, man, this is just the presence of God physically manifesting itself into our world. But the one that probably jumps off the scene, we talked a lot about. Remember, remember how many times Moses' name was mentioned in Joshua chapter 1? 11 times. And so you get this, like Moses is a major character all throughout the first five books. And right here, um, you, this, if you're familiar with Moses' story, this recalls another moment. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, it says, God called to him out of a bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place of which you are standing is holy ground. And you read everything that just happened with Joshua, and you're like, this is Joshua's burning bush. This is his moment. Why does Moses need that moment? Moses needs that moment because God was calling Moses to be the mouthpiece for his people and to lead his people into incredibly odds like a very difficult journey ahead of him. The reason Joshua needs this moment is because God appears to him as a warrior and Joshua is going to be the one leading his people into battle for the majority of his life. Joshua has this moment. God gives him this moment where he appears to him because what he needed in this battle was the presence of the Lord. He needed to know that God was going with him. Um. 
if we keep reading our passage in, in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel. Um, it says, None went out and none came in. Jericho is a unique city. Um, actually, I thought this was interesting, just doing some research. Insider Magazine uh, wrote an article a couple years ago that said, uh, it said, uh, the six, it was titled, The 16 Greatest Cities in Human History from Ancient Jericho to Modern Tokyo. And you're like, I can't believe Jericho's even mentioned in there. And what they say in the article is that Jericho may have been the oldest continually occupied spot in the world, with a settlement going all the way back to the 9,000 BC. So Jericho, while we are used to cities, we live in a very urban context. Cities can look very different. Uh, like, I think, depending on where you draw the lines, I, I think we are somewhere around like 3 million people in Philadelphia, maybe a little bit less. Um, we, I went to a city in India that was 33 million people, and you're like, this is a completely different situation. Um, but, you know, you go all the way back to Jericho, and the reason that they mention it here is because Jericho was unique. The reason that it was unique was because of its walls. And you're like, all right, um, walls. Why do walls matter? Uh, well, for us, they're probably something that we're just used to. Uh, but if for them, then, walls were just like the cutting edge of, edge of technology. And you're like, what are you even talking about? <laughs> well, let's think about it this way. So, like, Rome had its roads. Um, Egypt had its chariots, and Jericho had its walls. The walls for Jericho were not just a, like something that, like a first line of defense. The walls for Jericho were what defined them and enabled them to prosper. It protected them fully. And so they were, if, if you were from Jericho, the, the way that these cities would function is that they, you would have this, it actually wasn't all that big of a city. It was about 10 acres, 10 acres around um, and there was about 200 people per acre, so about 2,000 people all together in this space. And the walls themselves would surround the city. There were outer walls and there were inner walls. And the people would live on the inner walls. Unless you were poor, then you would kind of live closer to the outer walls. Um, and what would happen is the, the gates would normally be open and people would live around and they would, and they would flourish. What would we would call the suburbs? Because people flourish in the suburbs. Um, but then when war would happen, they would come, Right. They would come, and they would come, and they would shut up the gates, right? So they would, they would close everybody in. And what happened is they heard, like, the people of Israel have just crossed the Jordan River. And so something's happening, so they shut the gates. And now Joshua is looking at these walls. Um, I think I have a picture right here. Oh, that is a terrible picture. Oh, my goodness. When you blow it up on a screen like that, I promise you on my computer it looked a lot better. <laughs> Um, there you go. Uh, so Jericho, but you can kind of still see it. There's like layers to this, right? Do we see it? We can kind of still see it. Um, there's two walls, which would be the darker brown, and then there's the lighter brown on the bottom. So the, the wall behind, there would have been like a, an embankment, and there would have been like the, uh, the higher wall, and the lower wall um, would have been made up of two different sections. And the lower section probably would have been between 12 and 15 feet high. Um, so that's just the lower section. And then the upper section would have been made um, of mud and brick and would have been about six feet wide and about 20 to 26 feet high. So a total of about 32 to 41 feet total, um, somewhere in there. <clears throat> and I was trying to think about how tall this building is, but it's probably something like that, uh, depending on where you're at, um, what part you're looking at. And for us, we're like, man, well, those are big walls, but like, what's a wall? I mean, I don't know how that really matters. But for them, um, how, do you, how do you get into a place like that? I mean, it's absolutely impossible, un completely unheard of. I mean, when you look at Joshua, he's looking at these walls like, this is, this is literally impenetrable. There's no way. I mean, you can come up with strategies. Maybe you have a battering ram. Maybe you have different strategies. But there's no way for you to get through these walls. And so you have these people that have shut themselves inside. Let's keep reading. So then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpets, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall go up 
everyone straight before him. And Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and, and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. All right, so again, we make a big deal about like what happened. Um, but I personally think um, when it comes to military, I'm like, that is an outrageous plan. That is ridiculous. Um, that is, <laughs> if I were sitting there um, and Joshua said, this is the plan, I would be the one to say, I have questions. Um, I mean, you are, you're saying, okay, this is the plan. We are going to take seven days. Um, for the first six days, we are going to march around the city. And on the seventh day, we're going to march around the city seven times. And then we're going to blow the horns. And then we're going to shout. So you're going with, you know. Um, and you're just like, okay, uh, that's the plan. And, and then you think about not only the plan, but God is doing something in the midst of this. Um, and I, we're, we're going to get to it. But I think one of the reasons that this plan is so simple is because the people of Jericho needed to know that it was not their effort that defeated the city of Jericho. God was doing something. One of the ways that you see that is not just the plan that they had, but the ways that you see that is um, the order in which God instructed them to march around the city. So just, just look at this with me. He says, if you're, when you walk around the city, you're supposed to walk around with the armed men in front. Behind them is seven priests with ram's horns. The priests then carrying the ark would be in the middle. And then you would have a rear guard of men that are protecting that. And then you would have the people. And I think one of the things that's unique is that the Lord calls Joshua to bring the ark into this battle, um, which has happened before, um, but is very rare, very rare. Um, the ark of the covenant is what God has given his people in order to, it is the symbol of his presence amongst his people. And so it's the thing that when when they step into the Jordan, when they step into the Red Sea, they have the ark and the presence of the Lord. As soon as it's there, it separates the waters. And so now you have him saying, bring this into the battle. But what you're going to see is that the presence of the Lord doesn't have to, um, the ark doesn't have to be there in order for the presence of the Lord to go with them. There's going to be plenty more battles. And he, he doesn't tell him every single one needs to bring the ark. He's doing something different in this moment. And so what I think he's doing, and the reason that I think he's doing this is because what he needs, like ultimately, the plan, um, if that is the plan, what they need to remember as they're walking around these walls, that they would not look at the wall, but at the heart of this, right in between the people, that the presence of the Lord would be there, and they would keep their eyes and their focus on him. That is what makes them a people, remember. So you get this core truth that comes to the surface, whether it's through the theophanies or through God calling his people to bring the ark into the battle, or whether it's through the way that God organizes all of Israel around the ark of the covenant, this core truth that God is with his people. Um, it makes me, think of, makes me think of the words of Rahab. Um, if you weren't here for Rahab, Rahab is in Joshua chapter 2. She's a prostitute in Jericho who, um, who took care of the spies and made this incredible, probably the most significant proclamation about who God is in this book um, was made by Rahab, this prostitute. And what she says in Joshua 2.11 is, For the Lord your God, he is God of heaven above and of earth beneath. This woman that is so far off from the Lord understands who God is. And she understands him on a cosmic scale. Like she sees God as someone that is infinitely power, powerful. She sees God as someone that is absolutely transcendent. Someone that is outside of our time. And I think while that's true, what we see here and what is so encouraging throughout Scripture is that God is not just transcendent and all-powerful and omnipresent and that, that he is everywhere always. He is both everywhere, but he is here. That, that is different. That is unique. It's significant. That God, 
the story of Scripture truly goes from Eden, where God creates man and woman, places them in the garden, and he brings, and he is there with them. The presence of the Lord is with them. And from that moment forward, all the way into the very end of Scripture, you get in Revelation where it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. So the story of Scripture is told between the presence of the Lord with his people and the presence of the Lord with his people. And you have these moments where God is just, He's inserting his presence into our world over and over and over and over again, whether it's through the, through the Ark of the Covenant, through the temple, whether it's through God meeting with Moses, God speaking to Isaiah, God speaking with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whether it's them telling him to bring the Ark into the battle, God is like, I am not just everywhere, I am here. I am here with you. And... I think the greatest of these, the greatest, God's presence finds its greatest expression in Jesus. You're like, how does all this connect to Jesus? All of these moments are but a foreshadow of what will fully come. When the presence of the Lord is not something that we are carrying in an ark, but the presence of the Lord takes on human flesh that God would come and that he would be among us. So you're like, well, how do, you, how do I make sense of all of this, that God is just breaking into our world over and over and over again? Well, the reality is everything was building up to the presence of Jesus Christ, who is called Emmanuel, which is God with us. The author of Hebrews says it this way. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom we appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. <laughs> Which is crazy, because we often think about Jesus as just the one that came for a period of time. But what you see in scripture is there's a much larger view of who Jesus is, that he was there in the beginning, he's there at the end, and for a moment of time, he's present with us. Um, I think... Um, I want to carry this all the way forward because this truly matters. What we said in the beginning um, was that knowing God is with us is more important than knowing the plan. Knowing God is with us is more important than knowing the plan. We've established that the plan feels outrageous. But the point is that God's presence, that fact that he is with us, is truly the thing that matters. And so not, God is not just with the people of Israel and Jericho. God is with his people through Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say about his presence with us, right? He says about the Spirit in John 14, 15 through 17, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The idea was that the very spirit that was there in the beginning hovering over the water, that is carrying us through the Old Testament, that embodies Christ, is now given to his church, and the presence of the Lord is made manifest. God's presence is everything. When describing the role of us, the church, um, Ryan Lister, who is a professor at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, he says the church has two clear purposes. The church works within itself for the sanctification of its members to prepare God's people for God's present and future presence. The church works externally to share the gospel so that the lost may enjoy God's presence now and forever as well. How else can you identify what we do? We are the people who have embraced the presence of the Lord. And what we do is we, through the power of the Spirit, usher that presence into this world. It's what makes us who we are. I think um, I, I don't know, this term presence has been, it's, just, it's, it's in this passage, but it's been sitting with me for, it feels like, the past two or three weeks. Um, and I think it's difficult because if you've ever been in, in um, if you've ever gone through something that is difficult, a battle in your life, 
Um, one of the things that we do in battles is we very quickly run to a plan, right? So if you're like, all right, I got this thing at work and I got to figure out how to navigate around it. I've got to figure out a solution for it. I got to talk to this person, do this, do this, do this. Um, and there's a lot of battles that we have capabilities for. And so we navigate our, around, our way around them or we navigate our way through them and we figure out. But then there are some battles in your life where you are fully incapable of conquering on your own. That's the situation that Joshua is in. That's the situation that we're often in, where there's moments where things happen in your life. And if you haven't been there yet, I don't, long, I don't want you to be there. But one of the things that I do realize is that God's presence is most felt when we need him in those moments. Because what you realize is that you are so incredibly limited in what you're actually able to control and accomplish. And so part of my story is my battle with losing my brother at an earlier age. And there's, there's part, I, I was even processing this like past two weeks that I realized like, man, I'm fully incapable of this. There's a grief and a pain and a difficult, there's a difficulty that no solution is going to help in this moment. And so one of the things that has been such a blessing is that when you would sit down with people and, and out of the kindness of the heart, they would give you answers, which is great. But one of the things that has been such a blessing is for someone just to be present. Is for someone to sit down with you and to embody Christ, a brother and sister to sit down with you and to just be there. And it's not that you don't point them to truth. You absolutely point them to truth. But what I see here, what's most significant all throughout Scripture is the incarnation, that God came to be with us. And there is an opportunity as we go through our battles to go and be with people, to be the presence of the Lord with them and to sit with them and to feel with them and to grieve with them and ultimately to be the strength when they lack it. And so what I see here is that what gets them through this battle, the most significant part sometimes is not the plan that we have or the answers that we're given. Sometimes the most significant part of our battle is just that God is present with us. That's what we need to know. Because if we have an answer, sometimes it's not the answer that we like, or it's the wrong answer. All you need is the presence of the Lord. So you see this, that God is coming to Joshua, and from beginning to end, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about the battle, but if you look at the very end of Joshua chapter 6 and verse 27, it says, the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. So you start with God meeting with Joshua, and then you see the story is carried through by God placing himself in the ark in the center of the story, and at the end he says, I'm with you. If you miss his presence, you've missed the point. This is about God being with his people and that being our answer that we need the most. So the question, let's actually get to the conversation. Um, let's get to the conversation. So um, we'll keep reading. Joshua um, chapter 6, verse 20 says, So the people shouted, um, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the walls fell, fell, flat, uh, fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there, the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all their relatives and put them outside of the camp at Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels and bronze and iron. And they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord but Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she, has, she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Second thing that we're going to see is what side of the battle are you on? Um, so this is just uh, a side note, but... Um, Interesting note, the New York Times uh, published an article in 1990. The, top, the title of the article uh, was Believer's Score in Battle Over the Battle of Jericho. 
And it was about the archaeology, um, the archaeology that was taking place. There's an incredible study that took place in the 90s on Jericho. And one, a couple of the things that they found was that, um, one, the walls fell, fell out, um, which would not have been normal uh, if, you were, if you were trying to conquer a city. And then the other thing is that there was about a three-foot layer that covered all of ancient Jericho of ash um, that they discovered. And... Uh, which is incredible. And then the other thing that they found in there is that there were storehouses that were full of wheat, pots that were full of wheat, and the wheat was burnt. But one of the things that um, secular archaeologists said about this is that it was clear that it was during the season of harvest. I was like, well, of course it was. Um, and you just you see this evidence for something that actually took place. Um, and but it's helpful for, the, for us to just remember that these things are real. Um, but uh, let's go back to the conversation that, that the Lord had with Joshua in uh, the commander. There was a question. Um, there was a question that Joshua first asked. He says, are you for us or for our adversary? So Joshua is surveying the land and he comes across this man with his sword drawn. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, no, um, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. That's helpful for me, um, because what we just read was very difficult. Verse 21 says, Then they devoted all of the city to destruction with men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, to the edge of the sword. Um, and I think the question that I have is, how can a good God do that? I don't know if you have that question or if that's the first time you've asked that question. Um, but when you look at that, you're just like, man, how... How can God do something like that? Um, and I think there's a couple of things that are going to be helpful as we navigate this. The conversation that Joshua had um, with the commander of the Lord's army, but also the confession that Rahab said in chapter 2. Um, if you remember in chapter 2, when the spies met with Rahab, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of, um, the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. So all the inhabitants, via Rahab's own confession, all of the inhabitants, Rahab being a prostitute, one that would have been at the bottom of society, um, was informed that there was something happening outside of Jericho that was greater than anything that they'd ever seen. Um, and one of the things that you see is that they were all aware of who God was. And yet, only Rahab turns to him. Um, and I, I think it's, it's helpful for us to just remember, like, God's description when he speaks to Moses, this is his description. He says, the Lord, the Lord your God, in Exodus 34, um, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what you get here is this picture of who God is. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Um, you see this here, that God is extremely patient with these people extremely patient with these people. Even if you look all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking with Abraham, and what he says to him is that you're going to go from here and you are going to be slaves. For 400 years, you're going to be slaves because the cup of wrath for the Amorites has not been yet complete. And what he's saying is in this time, this 400 years where there's going to be someone else that's going to be dwelling in this land, we're waiting in part because you are going to Egypt and that that is where you're going to grow. The other part is because my patience is still here. I'm waiting. There is a waiting period where God is just being gracious with these people. And I think there is a danger. The way that I kept thinking about it is there's a danger in mistaking God's patience for his absence. Like that you would lean on the patience of God and believe at some point he's not there. And that's where these people had arrived. That their hearts had landed at the point where they had dismissed the incredible acts of God, the things that they had heard, and to the point where they had just leaned into the idols that they had. One of the idols that they had, I mean, you're talking about extreme, extreme evil. 
One of the idols that they had was an idol of a god named Molech, and what they would do is they would sacrifice their children to it. There was a just incredible idol where they would light the back of it, and its hands would be like this, and they would place the children in his hands. And these children would die, and that was part of their sacrificial system. I mean, you're talking about people that were truly, truly evil. And so the question here, if we were to take a step back where you're just like, man, God goes in there, and yes, but he still destroys everybody. One, you see that he's patient. Two, you see that they're aware so that they're culpable. Um, But three, I think what this conversation with the the man with the sword allows us to see um, is that this battle is not about Israel versus Jericho. Like, I think that's what we think about, right? You're like, this is, this is what's going on. We got a battle going down. There's Israel and Jericho. But what, what, what the commander of the Lord's army says when, when Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? He says, no. Another way to say it, if you have the NIV, it would say neither. I'm not for it. And he says, I'm actually for the Lord. Um, and he says, I've come. And what you see there is that the, the question then is almost flipped on its head. Like Joshua is the one that asked the question, which is essentially, are you here, are you with us, or are you against us? And this man, this commander then flips it on his head, and Joshua is now faced with the question, am I with the Lord, or am I against him? And that is the same question that Jericho has been facing for 400 years. Am I with him? Am I against him? Um, and I think one of the things that you have to see throughout this story is that um, God, even in his judgment, that a good God would be extremely gracious, that he would bring his presence into our world from the very beginning. Um, God's presence is pushed out by our sin. And then God is making a way for his presence to still be among us. And where sin is presence. Sin is present, his presence is not. And so as sin has overtaken the city of Jericho, his presence has been pushed out completely. And God is making a way for that. He is making a way for that in a way that is much larger than just this battle. And ultimately, even in his making a way for that, he is still redeeming and restoring anyone that would turn to him. Anyone. And that is true in Old Testament and New Testament. I think there's something about us. It's like, I like Jesus. I don't know about God in the Old Testament. Um, and I, I think it's helpful for us to look at this and say, well, you know what? Those are, they're actually one and the same. They are one. The spirit that is in Christ is the same spirit that God is using to shape and, and to bring his presence into the world, into the Old Testament. And so they are one. And God's justice here, him pushing back evil, is necessary if, if good is going to prevail. So that's where we're at. And I think um, God doesn't just do that. We feel these like clean lines between Israel and Jericho. God doesn't just do that. Um, these lines begin to blur. So the first thing that he does is he redeems a woman out of Jericho. And in the very next chapter, we're going to see that God actually destroys someone in Israel because of their evil heart and what they've done. So these lines as to where we are, these lines begin to blur because he's not just for Joshua. The invitation is actually for Joshua to be with him. There's something much bigger happening. Then at the very end, I think um, we look at one battle. Um, and I just kind of wanted to, I don't know what time it is. Yeah, we got, um, I could probably talk about this forever. Um, we look at one battle, but I think as you look through, all throughout the Old Testament, one of the things that you see is that after, after Jericho after Jericho's defeated, after Israel gets in the land, it's just one of many battles which we're going to talk about. And then Israel settles in the land and something extremely sad happens. They become, in, in the words of Second Chronicles, they become worse off than the people that were there before them. The hearts of the people of Israel actually turn evil. And so something happens. So, so the Lord, Second Chronicles 36 says, so the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylon's, uh, Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing them after them into the temple. They had no pity on them, killing both young men and young women, the old um, 
and the infirm, God handed all of, all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home the Babylons, uh, all the articles, large and small, uh, used in the temple of God, the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace, the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore down all of the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. Um, so you see, in the end, Israel actually becomes, God uses Babylon um, as a source of judgment, and he's pushing back evil, whether it's within Israel or whether it's within their enemies. God does this either way. And he also makes a way, ultimately. So the question then is, whose side are you on? Um, I think one last thing, as we carry this all the way through the Old Testament and we carry this into the time of Christ and into the church today, um, an incredible, something incredible takes place. It's articulated in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Um, by abolishing the law of commandments and ex- expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself a new man in place of the two. Um, you should read more. There's, we don't have time. Uh, one of the things that you see with Christ is that he, he breaks down what Jesus, when God's presence is fully and perfectly um, arrives in Jesus Christ and he goes to the cross and he ultimately is the one that fights the battle that we can't. He pays the price that we, that we can't. And what happens is that there's this wall of hostility that's divided, not just between the people that are God's people and not God's people. That wall is completely divided. Um, it is broken down. Um, but also there's first, there is union with Christ. And because there's union with Christ, there's union with others. And this is a beautiful picture where right now you see war, but what Christ ushers in is a time where these people that were once at war because they're one in Christ, now there's a wall that was present that is no longer present. And so just as God tears down this wall in Jericho, um, God continues to tear down these walls that we can't tear down ourselves. He continues to break down and go into battle. His presence brings in, ultimately, what we can't do on our own. Um, and so the question then is, whose side are you on? And I think um, one of the ways that we begin to think about this, just as, um, as Aaron comes up and as we close and as we just continue to think on what the Lord is doing here, um, God's presence, uh, it requires um, a response. And so... The ways that we think about responding to it, what you see with Joshua is that he humbles himself in the presence of the Lord, and then he responds in obedience and faith. That he would walk out a plan that we established was absolutely, kind of feels ridiculous. Um, but he would believe that God is in this because this is what God commanded us to do, and so there's a reason to do it. And so that the presence of the Lord would actually begin to shape and change the decisions that Joshua made. And so one of the things that I think is helpful for us is that while we, while we think about this in our own life, um, I think, how do you even seek the presence of the Lord? Well, I think it begins by um, responding to the greatest display of his presence that has ever happened. By responding to Jesus Christ, by understanding who he is and living under his rule and his reign and his authority in your life. And I also realized that, um, I was just thinking, one of the reasons I think we lack the ability to, be, to see the presence of the Lord is that we're not present ourselves. I mean, has it ever been more difficult to just be where you are? That Not that we are just full, I mean, we are full of distractions, sometimes good distractions, and sometimes we just invite those distractions um, we're, we're full of anything uh, that would just remove us from feeling where we are right now. We are invited by the world into all of that every day. And what Jesus actually does is he invites us out of that. That he invites us to feel again. He invites us to respond to who he is and to sit in his presence, to walk in obedience, and to discover that his presence is actually, no matter what battle we're going through, everything that we ever needed. That's the invitation. So let me pray for us, um, and we'll, we'll finish up.
Father, um, Lord, I feel like that was a lot. Um, Lord, there's a lot in there. You are shaping your people. You're calling them into obedience. Lord, in that life of obedience, that life of faith, that life of belief is one that is full. And the reason that it's full is because you are there. So, Lord, I, I don't know, uh, you know where each and every person is right now. You know what it looks like for every person in this room to take one more step towards belief and faith in Christ. Lord, thank you for making your presence known in this world. Lord, from the beginning of time, breaking into our world, ultimately sending Christ and then sending your spirit to be present with us at all times. Lord, I pray that you would respond to that. Let us not mistake your patience for absence. You are here. Let's respond to who you are. I do pray for the person in this room right now that is feeling the, they know exactly how they need to respond, but they're terrified. They know exactly what they need to set aside. But Lord, but there's, there's not security in that. I pray that they would find that there actually is security and safety and not knowing what's next, but just knowing you're with us. Or let's run to those spaces and sit in those spaces and invite others into them. Lord, would you do a work in us that only you can do? Father, we love you. In your name, amen.